Well, good morning. We turn your Bible to Philippians chapter 2. May the saving love of Christ be the measure of our lives. Adam, you must have read this text before you chose that song. We're going to begin the Gospel of John, the second week of Advent. We're going to be in John a while. We're doing some preliminary text today. Brother Al preached one of the most powerful sermons I ever heard the week before we got here on unity. And he did that not because there's d- division at, Fish- uh, at Lakeview. This, this place is a, uh, a place that's known for its unity in the gospel. But the Word of God can function as an antibiotic when infection has already set in, or it can, it can function uh, as an immunization. And that's the way the text, you desire to function in a healthy church. And so we're going to be looking at unity again as we begin our ministry here uh, at Lakeview. And this is one of those powerful passages on that, that subject. Um, but before we get into our text, we had Veterans Day on Thursday. And uh, I love Veterans Day because it's a time where we can honor our honorable men and women who are in the U.S. Armed Forces or who have served in the U.S. Armed Forces. It is a scriptural thing to honor one another. And though we know that it is God who ultimately is the one who secures our freedoms, from Genesis 1 on, we recognize God uses human agency. And so we are grateful for our men and women who have served in the Armed Forces. So if you have served or are currently serving in armed forces, would you stand so we can honor you? Amen. Amen. We are so grateful for you. Well, if you would look with me in Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Let's pray. Father, the psalmist writes, I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. Lord, by that word this morning, we pray that you would revive our souls. You would make wise the simple, and we are the simple. That you would rejoice our hearts and enlighten our eyes by the Spirit through this inerrant, infallible authoritative, sufficient, and clear word. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. 
Amen. In 1944, the British Navy was preparing for Normandy. And there was a chaplain on a, on a British ship named Brofton Knox who, who noticed that the minds of all of those on board the ship, that is, no matter what rank they were, were centered on the success of the invasion. He says that no one was concerned with their own self-interest. Their only concern was how they could aid their shipmates in their commonly shared goal and task. He said later, I remember noting in my mind how I'd never been happier. Now after D-Day and uh, the Brits returned back to England, uh, Knox said that everyone on board this ship sensed a change in demeanor. And several of the shipmates came to him and wondering why. And here's what he said. The answer was quite simple. During those months that preceded and followed D-Day, our thoughts had a minimum of self-centeredness in them. We gave ourselves to our shared activity and objective. But once the undertaking was over, we reverted to our own purposes as we do normally. In other words, it was the shared vision that united uh, these men. And once that shared vision terminated, at the end of D-Day, self-interest took hold once again on the ship. Now, from a Christian perspective, when a, a people sacrificially partake in a common goal, a common vision, the term for that is koinonia, fellowship, or translated in some ways, partnership. Now, the concept of fellowship is commonly misunderstood in our church culture. The contemporary understanding of fellowship is when you hang out with another Christian. Now, that plays a role in fellowship, but that's not a comprehensive enough definition of what fellowship is. So if you attend a Sunday morning event and you leave, you say, I attended a Christian service. But if they had food on the grounds, I was at a fellowship, all right? But when Paul was writing... This notion of fellowship or partnership, again, the word is koinonia in Greek, it had commercial overtones. So if, if Peter and John, the fishermen, were to buy a boat together for the purpose of opening up a, a fishing business, um, they've entered into a fellowship. They've entered into a partnership. And, and so the core of fellowship is the self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. Christian fellowship is a collective self-sacrificing conformity to the gospel for the purpose of the kingdom, the glory of the kingdom of God. To the degree that a church has that vision, there will be unity. And incidentally, that's why Lakeview has such great unity. And we need to keep that up. But to the degree that a church does not share that vision, there will be division. 
Paul knows that. Paul has heard that there is division in Philippi, which signals that the common vision is being eclipsed by selfish ambition. So for Paul, unity is fundamental to the unity or the mission of a church. As Brother Al preached on June 13th, from Ephesians 4, Paul writes, As a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling. And then he begins to lay out what that looks like. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Paul recognizes that's central to the mission. Jesus himself, on the night before he was crucified, in fact, he would be arrested in just a few hours. And he's praying this glorious high priestly prayer in John 17. There's a whole lot of things he could have prayed, but here's one of the things he prayed in that prayer. So he has the cross that is, he's facing, all right, where he's going to take the wrath of God for sinners. But here's what he prays. He says, Father, I pray that they, that is the, the believers, the ones who would trust in him, I pray that they would be one just as you and I are one. Why? So that the world will know that you have sent me. Of course, a main reason for this is that the gospel is a message of reconciliation. We are naturally alienated from God. In fact, it's a two-sided alienation. God is alienated from us because of his holy wrath on sin. And we're alienated from him because we don't love him. In fact, we're enemies to God in our natural states. The carnal mind is not subject to the law of God. And yet Jesus Christ, by his blood, has made reconciliation between a holy God and sinning believers or believing sinners. And so... If this gospel is a message of reconciliation, how can unbelievers be convinced of this gospel if we're not reconciled to each other? Three years ago, I had a student that I taught in college who called me and he asked me to pray for his brother who was a pastor. And I don't know what the crime was. He didn't get into detail at all, but he said that a youth pastor in their church had been charged or at least there were accusations that he had committed a grievous crime. And, and in fact, it, it got the sheriff involved in the little town that they were in. And they're just, it caused great division in their church. I mean, there was one side and the other side, and they were at war with each other. But the sheriff had to get involved with the church, and so he came and spoke to the church at a business meeting. And one of the things this sheriff said to this warring faction, he said, one of the reasons I'm not a Christian is I see more unity outside the church than I do inside the church. I don't need Jesus for that. Division is devastating to our witness. It bears false witness to a, an accomplishment of our Lord Jesus Christ. As I said, he has made reconciliation. And so when we are divided, we're saying the gospel's not sufficient for our reconciliation. Second reason it's devastating is that when a church is divided, they turn in on themselves and there's nothing left 
for reaching the world with the gospel. That's why I think that aside from the attack on our source of authority, the inerrant, infallible Word of God, aside from the attack on the Scripture itself, I don't think there's a more effective method of the devil than to sow seeds of division in a church. In fact, that's why Paul, in every single letter that he writes, has to deal with the issue of unity. And and Paul's going to address that head on here. But before he does... He reminds them of the certainty of grace in their lives. Paul is always grace-oriented. True unity, lasting unity, comes from hearts that have been changed and compelled by grace. And that brings us to the first part of Philippians 2, a motivation for unity in the church. A motivation for unity in the church. Notice with me in verse 1. He says, so... If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Now that word so uh, is important. You know, generally when we see weaknesses in others, when we we see sins in others, whether it be in our own family or in our church family, what is our natural tendency? It's to criticize. Uh, it's to become hostile. You see issues in this person, and you you really elevate yourself above that person in that particular moment. Well, that's not Paul's method. Uh, Paul's inspired method is much more wise, much more loving, and much more effective. Uh, He does not tolerate divisiveness. But instead of slandering and instead of being critical, he says, I have a gospel to present to you. For instance, in Ephesians 4, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as in Christ, God forgave you. He always uses the gospel to address the issues that he discerns in a church. Now, this word so, that's an important word. It takes us back to chapter 1, verse 27. You don't even have to turn. Look in verse 27, which I believe is the central theme of the book of Philippians. In verse 27, he says, Only let your manner of life... Now, he's writing to Christians. He began in chapter 1, verse 1, to the saints in Philippi. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, he's not saying you have to live a certain way in order to be worthy. He's saying that you have been declared worthy in the Son of God, and now your life should match your position. All right? So he says, let your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That is the calling of the church. The moment we divert from that, we are in disobedience and a church will be under the discipline of God. So that brings us to this passage. Um, The church of Philippi had so many great qualities. Do you know how generous they were? 
Uh, perhaps you remember 2 Corinthians 8 where Paul is raising support for the Jerusalem church. And he speaks about these churches in Macedonia that gave out of their poverty. In fact, they pled, they, they begged earnestly to give out of their poverty for that collection. Well, Philippi was one of those churches in Macedonia. They were a giving church. They gave till it hurt. Uh, they were also willing to suffer for the gospel. Uh, back in chapter 1, verse 29, he, he, Paul makes it clear that they're suffering for the gospel. It has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. In other words, you should not be surprised you are suffering for Christ. But they were having issues as well. So they were a generous church. They were willing to be persecuted. But there was division. William Barclay says something I think so penetrating. I can't say it any better myself. I think we may have it on the screen. He says the one danger which threatened the Philippian church was that of disunity. There is a sense in which that is the danger of every healthy church. So in fact, I, I would venture to say that Philipp, the, the church at Philippi was one of the healthiest churches in the New Testament. And he's saying this is a danger for every healthy church. It is when people are really in earnest, when their beliefs really matter to them, that they are apt to get up against each other. The greater their enthusiasm, the greater the danger that they may collide. Such an insightful statement. And here he addresses that division by reminding them of how God, the triune God, has treated them even when they were in their trespasses and sins. You know, I really do believe this to be the case. How we treat other believers reveals more than anything else. How we treat other believers reveals more than anything else deep down how we believe God treats us. And so he begins with how God treated us. Notice he, he, he does this by essentially asking five questions of the believer that he assumes the Philippians, because they were mature in the faith, will have to answer yes to these questions. The first is, he says, is there, of course you have the if, but it's, it, it's, it's communicated like it is, a, it is a question. Is there any encouragement in Christ? Now that word encouragement, paraklesis, it means someone who comes along, some, along someone else to help. Now, if you don't feel like you need help, that's not very encouraging. But if you realize how broken and impotent you are to live the Christian life, to read that, that Christ is our paraclesis, it should provoke praise and love. He says... Is there any encouragement in Christ? The Son of God, and we'll celebrate this during Advent season. Of course, we celebrate it every day, don't we? He descended to us to come alongside sin-stained people who were redeemed by his blood 
to help them in their Christian life. His help is more than like a, a multivitamin. His help is our very grace, our very power, our very life. Of course, what he says here, the context is referring to persecution. As I just read in Philippians 1.29, the Philippians are suffering. And they're suffering from the Roman government, an overreach of the government because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And so as they suffer for Christ, he is their very help. Whatever we need from God in Jesus Christ, it is supplied as our paraclesis. He is our peace. He is our provision. He is our comfort. He is our sustaining grace. He's our forgiveness. He's our victory over the power of sin and any other form of assistance that we need in Christ. If there's any encouragement in Christ, and Paul is assuming the Philippians will say, yes, there is. Second question that he asks is, is there any comfort from love? Now, I believe this is Trinitarian. Paul is thinking in terms of the Trinitarian God, but he's just mentioned Christ. He's going to mention the Spirit in the next question. So here, I think he's reflecting on the love of the Father. And so this word comfort, it means solace for the troubled heart. And yes, we will have troubled hearts because in this world, we will have trouble. We are a people who've been redeemed from the penalty of sin, yet we've not been redeemed from the power of sin yet or from the presence of sin yet. We, have, we are being redeemed from the power of sin, but we live in a broken, fallen world. There will be trouble. And here he says, if there's any comfort from love, there is comfort that God gives us, the Father. And in fact, uh, the greatest of that, the love of the Father, is expressed in Jesus himself. In fact, Romans 8, 32, he did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How much more will he in him freely give us all things? Those all things are the things that we need to persevere in the faith. The things that we need to have joy in the journey. The things that we need to finish the race, to be conformed to Christ. The love of the Father means... He's completely invested in you. The fact that he would give his son the infinite provision for your biggest problem means he's all in. He's all in. He's completely invested. He's completely committed for everyone who has trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he adds, notice, is there any participation in the spirit? Again, there's the word for koinonia. Koinonia, the word participation, our partnership in the Spirit. God in the Son, by the Spirit, has established fellowship with us. We have fellowship with the Father through the Son and by the Spirit. How can we receive that vertical fellowship? And then go rogue horizontally. That's what he's asking. Finally, notice he asks, is there any affection and sympathy? Now, affection is this intense inner yearning 
that is first mentioned in chapter 1, verse 8. So look back in chapter 1, verse 8. In verse 8, for God is my witness. Notice how I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, what does that mean? Paul himself has received the affection that comes from Jesus Christ, this inner yearning. He has received it. He's experienced it. And now he becomes a conduit of it. How do you know someone has become a conduit of this love? They express it. And so he's asking, has there been any affection? Yes, the assumption is. And then notice this word sympathy. In the ESV, it translates sympathy. It also can translate mercy. It's the same word that's used in Romans 12, verse 1, where Paul is summarizing the first 11 chapters of Romans. And he says, in view of God's mercies, in view of God's mercies, I beseech you, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul is saying, have you received that affection? Have you received that sympathy, that mercy? Consider this analogy. You say to your child, did I not buy those clothes for you? Yes, sir. Did I not wash those clothes for you? Now, <laughs> this isn't a realistic, because uh, I don't think I've ever washed my children's clothes. Heather does that. Just bear with me. <laughs> Did I not wash those clothes? Yes, sir. Did I not dry those clothes? Yes. Did I not iron those clothes? Yes. In light of that, the least you could do is put your clothes in your drawer. Right? That's what Paul is doing here. It's analogous to what he's doing. In verse 1, he reminds us what God has done for you when you didn't deserve it. And that brings us to the mandate. He's never in a hurry to get to the mandate. He always, first of all, gives us gracious motives. Notice with me in verse 2. In light of this, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So the only command, the only verb in this four verses, now incidentally these four verses are one sentence in the original language. I can't even, it, it blows my mind that you could write a sentence with this much information in it. It's one sentence though. And it's the only verb in this sentence. Complete my joy by being of one mind. I mean, what an example the Apostle Paul is. And, and I think his examples inspire. We, as we see these examples from Paul, it's intended to change us. And the reason I say that is because how many times does Paul say, imitate me as I imitate Christ? And what an example we have here. And the question that, that arises from that. Do we find our hearts so invested in each other that we can say that our joy finds completion in our brothers 
and sisters' growth immaturity? Now, that is an indicting question, I think, for the American church, where we're so individualistic. You go to other places in the world where it's palatable that we need each other in order to survive. The community is much stronger. But it's a question we have to ask ourselves. Do we find joy in the maturity and the growth of our brothers and sisters? And Paul could have this perspective because the truth of, the, of verse 1 were his heart's song. It was the song that his heart sang. And in verses 2 to 4, says, Paul says that if these truths are your heart's song, many benefits will flow out of it. Note in verse 2, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Notice at the beginning and end of this verse, being of the same mind and then of one mind. Uh, that, that verb is found 10 times in Philippians. You think that's important? It's a short letter, isn't it? It's four short chapters, and that verb is found four times. So the call is to be of the same mind as we relate to one another. Of course, that mind is centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ and what the triune God has done for us by that gospel. And so the rest of verses 2 to 4 uh, give us six different ways that this unity of mind will be expressed. How important is that for a church, for the health of a church? Notice, first of all, having the same love. Second, being in full accord and of one mind, third. You know, the glory of God in Jesus Christ uh, is seen in a church that have people in it who may not have a lot of things in common except the love of God in Jesus Christ, and he's enough. I had one member uh, who I was close to, I was, a, I was very on good terms with uh, called me up one day and said I'm I'm leaving the church and I asked why are you leaving the church and he said because there's not enough hunters and fishermen there and, and I had to respond to him are you saying that you have to have common hobbies to unite you to the people of God is the cross and the resurrection not sufficient I mean, he's writing to people who would have a diversity of interest. And he said, you're of the same mind. That's who you are. It's enough. And it's one of the tragedies. It's one of the tragic fallouts of divisiveness and disunity in a church because it says falsely that the gospel is not enough to unite us. But in understanding that it is will bring us to verse 3, again, how this, this grace is communicated through one, a church, who, who is of the same mind. Notice in verse 3, he says, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Of course, selfish ambition is part of our fallen DNA. It, it takes us all the way back to the, the Tower of Babel, doesn't it? Where everybody... Uh, and Adam had this instinct uh, 
to make a name for himself or herself. It's not differences of opinion that divide us. The church is not called to uniformity. We all have perspectives on things, and there's some things you, level one issues that you've got to deal with. I mean, if you have heresy in the church, that, that's, that has to be dealt with, okay? Uh, he's not talking about that. He's saying having the same mind with regard to the gospel. But he's saying the real obstacle to, uh, in, in, in churches when it comes to unity is selfish ambition and conceit. He calls it like it is. It's not that person. It's the man in the mirror. Um, that word conceit, in fact, I think is very interesting. And the King James, I think, picks it up literally. You would love that. Uh, vainglory. Vainglory. Now, in that regard, conceit is probably not the best translation. Um, because that's not just arrogance. It's any view of ourselves that's not informed by the Word of God. And a vain view of self will always lead to a vain view of what makes us significant and what gives us value. And, and so if we perceive that we have more than someone else of something that makes us significant and gives us value, we're going to necessarily look down on that person. So sometimes you'll hear criticism that this person, uh, you know, is not as faithful uh, as they should be. And, and certainly that is always a concern, a prayer concern. But perhaps you're finding your significance in your faithfulness. And so you look down that person. Or it may be that you feel like you have less than someone else of something that gives one significance and value. And so you, you, you have this inferiority complex and there's jealousy that flows out of that. Either way, whether you think you're above or below, it causes division. And it's that kind of selfish ambition and conceit that is behind internal division. And so what must replace selfish ambition and conceit as our driving force. That brings us to the next part of this verse in verse 3. He says, In humility, counting more others more significant than yourselves. Now, humility literally uh, has this idea of forgetting oneself and exalting others with respect and concern for their redemptive good. Paul's going to use that same word in in verse 8, which we'll look at next time, right after Thanksgiving. But what does that look like in the church? What are the, the characteristics of humility in a church? Uh, the best discussion I've seen on this is from Paul Miller's book, The Loving Life. First of all, he says, humility is physical. It, it involves a physical placement that is in some way lower. Second, you can see humility. It's not vague. We see it in gratitude. We see it in concern for others. We see it in kindness. We see it in those who are, are not quick 
to, to speak ill of others. Third, it can feel like you're disappearing. When you are humble, people don't always notice you. That's okay. It actually may be good for us. Four, many sins such as anger and jealousy and quarreling are rooted in our unwillingness to take the low place. That's true in marriage. It's true in the home. It's true in the workplace. It's certainly true in the church. Fifth, once you get over the shock, the low place is a place of deep soul rest. Once you get over the shock of it, because it's the way God intended us to be. That's where we flourish. Sixth, you discover people in the low place. It's like entering a darkened room full of friends. And once your eyes adjust, you realize you're not alone. There's other people there. You begin to see friends everywhere. Maybe people you didn't notice when you were too exalted. And then seven, the great joy of the low place is it's where God dwells. It's where God dwells. I, Isaiah says that. I dwell, the Lord is speaking, I dwell in the high and holy place, but also dwell with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. It's where God dwells. And, and so when Jesus tells us to take the low place, he's telling us that's where he is. His whole life was was one of lowering himself. And so if someone puts you involuntarily in the low place, and it will happen in a fallen world because of their vainglory, because of their conceit and selfish ambition, if someone puts you involuntarily in the low place, you can decide to go there and reside there because of the gospel. We can accept what God has brought into our life through this difficult providence. But this mindset is not natural to us. It is so unnatural to our self-preserving instincts. We want revenge, don't we? And that's why we need the grace of this text. This text is on a rescue mission. It is intended to rescue those who've been saved from the penalty of sin, but still need to be saved from the power of sin. Indeed, this gospel-induced humility produces selflessness. Look with me in verse 4 as we close. Let each of you look not only to his one, his, their own interest, to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. I want you to think about this. Everyone united to Jesus is also united to each other. We are our brother's keepers. We have to understand that. But how can our hearts be turned inside out like this? The only remedy is to have our hearts overwhelmed by the one who is described perfectly in verse 4. We're going to look at him next time, more specifically, the first Sunday 
of Advent. We must look to the one who demonstrated this by his incarnational love. And it's that love that has the power to change us from selfish, self-loving, conceited, bickering, decisive, or divisive people into the one who expresses humility perfectly. Let me close you with this quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was once asked by a friend how one becomes humble. And here's what Lloyd-Jones said. He seemed to think that I had some patent remedy and could tell him, do this, that, and the other, and you'll be humble. I said, I have no method or technique. I can't tell you to get down on your knees and believe in prayer because I know you will soon be proud of that. There's only one way to be humble, and that is to look into the face of Jesus Christ. You cannot be anything else when you see him. That is the only way. Humility is not something you can create within yourself. Or we'll take pride in our humility. <laughs> Rather, you look at him. You realize who he is and what he has done. And you are humbled. And that's exactly what Paul's going to look at in the next part of that passage that we'll look at next time. Often Knox, the chaplain, and the British ship at Normandy, functional unity was necessary to carry out their task. But for believers, it's part of the task. It's part of the mission. It's the ministry of reconciliation. It's the ministry of reconciliation. And in that ministry, let me close here with a word to those who have not yet trusted in Jesus. It is a call, it is a pleading to every person who is alienated from God to be reconciled with him. And so reconciliation vertically begin, or horizontally begins vertically. Your biggest problem is, you can't get, is not that you can't get along with people. It may be your biggest problem is that you're separated from God. And so the, those of us who've received the ministry of reconciliation have been called to plead with you, be reconciled to God. And so as our musicians come, I want to do just that. Our natural state because we're unholy and God is holy, is separation. Every personal problem you have in life goes back to that. You are trying to live out a life on your resources. And you just can't do that. You're going to fall short. And it's going to show itself in the, the headbutting you have with every person in your life. But here's what God has done for us. He has sent his son to make reconciliation. And if you will trust in the son, if you will repent of your sin, humble yourself and cry out to God for mercy in Jesus and say, Jesus, I believe that you lived the life I couldn't live. And I believe you died the death that I deserve. And I believe you were raised from the grave so that I could have forgiveness of sins. 
If you will believe that message and commit to him, the Bible says your sins will be forgiven. And we would love to talk to you. We're going to have pastors here at the front of the aisle to talk to you if you have questions about that, that gospel of reconciliation. But let's stand and we sing. And I ask you, please be reconciled to God. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.